0: So we're in this series uh, that we've been called Pillars of Faith. We've started out the first two weeks with being in the book of Hebrews talking about these amazing people that we consider the heroes of faith, and we tell these stories about them, and we remember the, what they did, and we remember how they, how they showed up and how they trusted God, and how they moved in a way that showed that they gave complete control and trust over to God. Today we're going to shift from Hebrews a little bit and talk about some of these people that we, that we read about in the Gospels. And the, the one case we're going to look at today is one of those cases where Jesus gets in trouble because it's what he does. And this woman approaches Jesus. Actually, no, she doesn't approach Jesus. She just goes to synagogue that day and Jesus approaches her in a way. And I think sometimes we think about this idea that we hear all these stories in the Bible about these people that shout out to Jesus or that show up to Jesus say, Jesus, heal me, heal me. And then Jesus uses this phrase, by your faith you've been healed. And we have all these stories about these people that seek out Jesus, that come to Jesus, that get loud, that yell and scream indignantly to Jesus to, to heal them, to make them better. And those stories tend to trump this idea that this is what faith looks like. Faith is loud. Faith is, is, is this crazy, weird, bold thing that a lot of us who just don't live our life that way, who are a little more closed off or a little more shy, we sometimes think that maybe we lack it because we don't scream from the rooftops enough. And so faith is a hard thing for us. Today's story reminds me a lot of the way I talk about people's testimonies and how I say that everyone has a story. It doesn't matter if you were born in the first church of a pew and never went straight away from God. You've lived your whole life choosing the right thing and never rebelling. But the church doesn't tell those stories. The church tells the story of the drug addict that's now been saved or the person that went hit rock bottom and now is doing better. Or these are the stories that we celebrate every time kids go to things like NYC or we go to big conferences or whatever those are. Those stories are celebrated. The story of great turmoil to great redemption. And we sometimes miss these little subtle stories of faithfulness throughout all time. And if if we're not careful... In this story that we hear about this lady who's healed in Luke today, we miss her story, and we focus on the non-story. We focus on what doesn't matter. We focus on this idea that the Pharisees are yelling at Jesus again for doing miracles on the Sabbath. And we miss this whole other idea. So we're going to be in the book of Luke today. It's Luke chapter 13. If you want to turn there, it'll be on the screen too. Luke chapter 13, we have... Yeah, just, I want to just frame this a little bit. This, this particular story of Jesus right now is framed very purposely by Luke. Uh, we just, if you just read above, just before that, we have this uh, interpreting of the end times that we talked about last week. We also talk about this fig tree that's been rotten and dead, and now it's coming back. Fig trees were very much symbols of the, the, the Jewish religious system. So we, we talk about this. And then this story falls in, and then we're going to follow this story up with faith of a mustard seed and the the, the yeast being the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, I want you to hear this, how Luke put this here. 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days. Do not do it on the Sabbath. The Lord answered, You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him to give water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen years be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he has done. Okay, before we get into the Sabbath stuff, I just want to talk for a real practical sense right now. It's real easy to hear that Pharisee or the synagogue ruler saying, hey, listen, there are six days for work. Leave the seventh day alone. But listen, as a pastor, I get it. And here's why. Every once in a while there'll be moments where someone stands up in the church and wants to say something. There have been times where some of you in this room have raised your hands, and I've not called on you. Let me just tell you why. It's the same thing with this synagogue ruler. I don't know if he was actually being a jerky Pharisee or a synagogue ruler and going, look, you people on the... I think what he was doing is there was a line starting to form right? This woman was just healed. And I can just see he looks back and all of a sudden there's a line being formed so that Jesus can heal everybody that's there. And he says, listen, for six, there's six days you can be healed. Today, let's do this. Today, today let's, let's have our synagogue. Let's do this thing. And it is so quickly to snowball out of control. And so I don't know that he is the bad guy we want to paint him as. I think he might have just been trying to maintain order at synagogue that day. And so as he says to everybody, whoa, whoa, whoa settle down, get out of line. <laughs> we're not doing this today. Come back tomorrow, Jesus will heal all of you. Uh, we're closed today. So th- there's this idea that one, he needed to, con- to, to, to control or to keep order. And I think sometimes that is the impulse of us that stand up here, is that we have to keep order, we have to keep control. But can I tell you, some of the best messages I've ever, I've ever preached have been ones that were interrupted by people. That I mean and so I think some don't don't get the idea. You shush. <laughs> Emma perked up. I can interrupt. Is that is that cool? Um I, I think that we get so caught up and it has to be a certain way and that it has to be done and we have to have order and there can't be dead space between a song and the prayer and everything needs to be moving and when I say amen, I want that first chord to be hit and when the video gets done, I want announcements to start. I want the video to start at 10 o'clock. I want everything. It's got to be precise and if you read church growth and church plant books, they tell you all these things. If you start at 10.02, you're telling people you don't respect their time. Start at 10 o'clock or people are going to leave angry. They're going to leave your church. They're going All this stuff. Is flooding us, and it was him too. So he's got all these rules that he's got to maintain. And to their service, there was nothing but order. And so when this woman gets healed in the inappropriate time, all of a sudden he says, Whoa, 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 there is plenty of time for that. Right now, we're doing this. And Jesus says, Your heart is in the wrong place. Why? Not because He he, this the synagogue ruler wasn't even concerned about the woman being healed. He didn't even say, well, praise God for that. He just jumped around on the fact with we're not doing that again. (laughs) Settle down, people. We're moving on. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, because of what he did. And this is is the craziest part about this, right? He's being accused of breaking Sabbath rules, which it is a law on the Sabbath that you can't perform any medical procedure, which I guess technically a healing is. (laughs) This woman said that she was, she was bent over for 18 years. Now, I just want, it's easy for us to think about that. But can you imagine, for 18 years, never being able to look anyone in the eye? Never being able to really see the sky? Like, and if she wanted to do any, she had to kind of turn this, I mean, just imagine being bent over, physically unable to stand up straight for 18 years of her life, never being an equal to anyone, and this is what, she, she's, she's in synagogue, she's been this way for 18 years, she's a daughter of Abraham, Jesus calls her, everyone there knew her, she, she's not a stranger, this is not somebody that walked, you know, thousands of miles to attend synagogue that day, well, we know that because they can only walk a thousand feet to attend synagogue, synagogue, so she's here. Everybody recognizes her. They know her. She's got this ailment that makes her less than everybody else. She's constantly bent over, and this is what happens. Jesus calls her forward and performs this miracle, and they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath law. Well, what does it say in Exodus about the Sabbath? In Exodus, we hear this is the command. It says, <laughs> "Does it? Is not on there?" It's, uh, it's, there, go. There, we go. there he is. Hey. <laughs> I just want you to be able to see it. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For so long, the Jewish elite spent so much time figuring out how to keep the Sabbath holy that they forgot what holy meant. For, for so long, they, they, and it was, it, was in a good, it was good intention, right? Because here's where Sabbath comes from. This idea of taking a rest was because when they were slaves in Egypt, they didn't get a day of rest. They worked all the time. They were human doings, and God said it's important for you to be a human being, and on the seventh day, you're going to rest. Not just you. You're going to let your land rest. You're going to let everything rest every seven years. Don't till the fleet. You know, this, this Sabbath principle for God was this symbol of when the Exodus took place, they were to rest because they didn't get to rest before. And so when the Jews began to hash out all these ideas of what it meant to rest, it became exhausting. And all of a sudden, this this concept of freeing people from oppression became oppression. They they became slaves to this idea of what they could do on the Sabbath. You couldn't rearrange your furniture on the Sabbath because if you actually made a mark in the ground, that was tilling the land. You, You couldn't walk more than a thousand feet from your home on the Sabbath. So what they would do is they would store a hat at somebody else's house a thousand feet away, which then made that their home also. So they came up with all these rules of what they could do or couldn't do, and then they came up with ways to break them. And all of a sudden, this became the very oppressors that God was delivering them from in the first place. And so for a synagogue leader in this time, the Sabbath was one of the greatest tools of oppression he had. He got to dictate what people could and couldn't do on this day. And they they argued about it over and over and over again. More than one time do we hear Jesus accused of breaking the Sabbath, and more than one time in Luke and in Matthew, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I didn't break the Sabbath. So, what could be holier than looking in to an oppressed, beaten, just rejected woman that's never been equal to anyone? She's always been hunched over, never been able to look people in the eye, never had that equal standing, what could be holier than saying, woman, come here, you are healed of your ailment. And yet they say, you broke the Sabbath. I'm pretty sure that remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is going in to the people and saying, you are been restored. You have been made whole again. There's nothing holier than that. There's nothing that we can do that even compares to that than looking someone in the face and saying, I know you have not been treated like an equal. I know that you have been put aside. I know that you've been brushed under the rug. But today, today is different. Today you are equal. Today you stand toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with everyone else. And you are different. And I love this because there's two stages to this miracle. First of all, this woman, she doesn't yell out to Jesus, Son of David, heal my back. Jesus says, come here. Her act of faith is not this big, bold shout, but her act of faith is stepping out of her area, walking out to Jesus. There, there have been times that I've asked people to share in church, and this is what they say, uh-uh. I'm not asking them to, like, I, I want the, I'll give them something to read or whatever, and they won't do it. There, there is something, an act of, of bravery, of faith, for her to even walk out of where she was. It, so it's not, this, it's not the same kind of bold faith that we see in Luke 8. We see in Luke 8 this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and she goes up and just through the crowd touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. It's not that kind of bold faith. It's not her stepping out of her own norm. It's not her stepping out of social norms. It's her accepting them and then Jesus changing that situation. And so she has to respond to that, though. She's got to have enough faith to go, okay, he's calling me out. I know that's not going to end well. First of all, I shouldn't be up front at synagogue. Second of all, uh, it's the Sabbath and he shouldn't be healing anybody. This is not going to go well, but she still responded to that. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't just heal her ailment, right? He says to the lady, woman, your ailment is healed. But then what does he do? It says he puts her hand on her back, on her spine. And at that moment, she stood up straight. This twofold thing that Jesus does. Because we have tons of examples of Jesus just speaking. Get up. Take your mat. Go. You're healed. There, there was no, he didn't touch him. He didn't do any of that stuff. But in this case, we have a woman who is not just physically tormented. She's not just physically has this ailment. But there's a, there's a social and spiritual issue to it too. So by Jesus putting his hand on her back, he says, you're not only physically healed, you are now socially accepted. You are no longer unclean. And I'm going to make this two ways. I'm going to make, first of all, here, you you are no longer sub to anyone. It's just absolutely amazing. He didn't have to lay a hand on her. He didn't have to touch her at all. He could have just said, woman, you're healed, Go. But the, the act of him actually physically putting a hand on her says this is more than just what's going on spiritually. And we read that that that, that she was that she was bound by Satan for eighteen years, and that's why. And, and so I think a lot of times we can get caught up in that too, and be like, well, medically that just doesn't make sense. She she probably had scoliosis, not not some demon, right? And we can get caught up in that. But the bottom line is this whether she was possessed by something that made her hand, that made her that uh, that made the ailment manifest out whether that was the thing or whether we can just know that Jesus himself when he is tempted in the wilderness refers to Satan as the principalities and that power has been given to him on earth so the things that happen the, the, the crazy stuff that goes on, these, these ailments that we don't know where they come from, the, the thing that's handicapped her, the, this world has kind of made that happen. And we have someone that's in charge of the world. And so you can get caught up in little tiny things and go, well, I'm I, whatever. I, there's a commentator that I read that I'm pretty sure doesn't believe in miracles. Because every time you read a story like this, he justifies everything scientifically. And that's fine. If your brain works that way, okay. But the bottom line is, it could have very well been something that, was, that, that had a grip on this woman, and at that moment, she was delivered from that. Either way, Jesus restored her physically and spiritually and socially. There's this whole thing that went on that makes everything completely different, and Jesus intervened in that. Not because she begged him to, not because she even asked him to, but because he saw what needed to be done. A few months ago, we read from Isaiah 61 where Jesus gives his mission statement. And if you remember that, it was to heal to feed, and to clothe. So by Jesus walking in and seeing this woman, there's only one thing he could do. Heal her. This is what he does. So he calls her over, and he says, Woman, your ailment is gone. And then he puts his hand on, his back and, on her back, and everything is restored to the way she was once created to be. Everything was made whole again. Now this would not have happened if she hadn't come out of the crowd. I think we we miss a lot of that sometimes. Because this is not going to be good for this woman. She she is now going to be, well, kind of in the doghouse. She, She just did something that was totally out of line to do at synagogue. But there was something about Jesus that she said, I'm going to do this. I am going to take this step out. I am going to walk toward this rabbi that's calling me. I am going to do it. And can you, this is, there are a few of you that I really love serving communion to. I like serving communion to all of you. (laughs) But there are some of you that when you come up to take communion, it's almost like you're going to stand there until I look you in the eye. And I appreciate that so much. Because there are some of you that take communion and I don't know if it's a shame thing, I don't know if it's just the way it is, but she will not look at me. Now watch, this week's going to be totally different. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like... <laughs> but you, you, so, some of you come to receive the elements, and, and, and maybe, maybe it's just a reverence thing. I, I don't know. But you, you, you take it face down, dip it, and you walk away, and there's just no... Uh, can you imagine being this woman who is completely hunched over. And Jesus calls her, and she walks out, still hunched over, still not looking at him. And then all of a sudden, hand on back, she stands up and gets to make eye contact with Jesus for the first time. The person that had the compassion, the splatna, the, the in the guts, the thing that moved her. And all of a sudden, she's not just healed physically, but she's eye to eye with the Savior of the world. Everything changes for this woman because she took a step out of the crowd when Jesus invited her to. Today, we're doing baptisms. And that's what baptism is. Most of us, except for the two that are being baptized, don't mind going underwater. So it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a matter of, of do we like to go underwater or will we go underwater? water. It's not a matter of these things. I mean, there's nothing really hard about baptism. All you have to do is answer three questions, and as long as you say yes to all of them, you pass the test. There's nothing really physically difficult about it. But there's something about stepping out of a crowd to say, I am going to do this. There's something about coming out and saying, this is my declaration. This is what I want to do. When that woman left her comfort When she left her comfortable space, not looking at anyone, when she left that space, she was declaring that there was something better for her to walk up to. She she was making a declaration that Jesus was worth breaking the norm for. And so when we baptize, we don't baptize for salvation. We don't believe that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. We, We believe when Jesus looked at the cross, looked at the thief on the cross and said, today you'll live with me in paradise once you're baptized. No, he just said, today you'll live with me in paradise. There was no baptism there. For, for us, baptism is that declaration, that step out of the crowd. It's Jesus saying, come here, come here. And you say, okay, I'm gonna come here. And there are times where you stand in that pool of water and, and, and you're there and spiritually, you have been this for 18 years and you've not once looked at your faith in the eye and you get dipped and you get brought up and all of a sudden you are standing tall and you're face to face with the Savior. And everything gets to change. Everything gets to be different at that moment. You now live in a different way. You have made this declaration. You have stepped out. Not because you know what's going to happen. It's an honor that you trust me. But really it is the faith of what is to happen right now. Peter said in his great sermon at Pentecost, that you are to confess Jesus with your mouth and be baptized. Your baptism does not have a place in salvation, but it does have a place in obedience, and it does have a place in faith for you to shout out that I am going to do this. I am moving this direction. I am coming out from the crowd, and I am making this declaration. This is something that I need to do. This is exactly what's taking place with this woman. The woman that's not even named. I, and I love the fact that, you know, a lot of Luke's miracles are these, are these medical miracles, right? Because Luke was a doctor. So we hear about these things, like the woman bleeding for 12 years and her bleeding stops. The back standing up straight. The, the, the person whose arm is shriveled and this is Jesus' first healing on the Sabbath that he does. Luke likes to tell these medical stories. And, and I, I just, one of my favorite things, and not just because one of them is sitting here, but... Um, Doctors that are believers are some of my favorite people in the entire world. I I wasn't going to call anybody out on that, man. But Ellis's pediatrician is also a believer. And and, and so we we get to talking about stuff sometimes. And he's he's super sanctified because his daughter goes to Point Loma. So (laughs) we we get to talking sometimes about about just different stuff. And I love it. I, I love when he says, yeah, I don't even know. I love when, well, this is going to sound a little bit odd, I don't love when people are going through cancer treatments, So let me just, but, but I love when people come out of that and, or they're journeying through it and all of a sudden their doctor takes in their PET scan and they go, I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. That should not be gone. And, and they go, I don't know. There's this element of faith that has to take place for us to be able to move forward spiritually. That's it. We have to, at some, point, at some point, we have to declare on our own, without any evidence, that David and Goliath song. We have to be able to come to a place where we just go, I don't know why I believe it. I just do. And there's tons of evidence that backs it up, but it's all It's all allegorical. There's no empirical evidence. I can't, I can't prove to you that God exists. I'm sorry, I can't do it. There's no way. I'm not even going to try. And I, and I could turn that around and tell you, but you can't prove to me that God doesn't exist. But what good does that do? Here's what I can do. I can tell you how God has moved in my life. And I can tell you how each step of faith has, has made me grow in a way that I see God differently. And so what I know is this, that God calls us to do the things that we can't do in order to show us that he can. This woman was not going to be healed. The lady in, in Luke 8, it says that she had spent her entire wealth on doctors and they couldn't fix it. She was not going to be healed. But there was something that happened that she said, I am going to go where it doesn't make sense. I'm going to go where there is no evidence and I'm going to throw my life at that the woman that was sitting in the crowd on this day at synagogue, she decided to answer this call of Jesus calling her out. Two of you today have decided to answer that call as well, where you are willing to step out of your crowd, and for both of you, I know, out of your comfort zone, and be willing to make this declaration, to make this public declaration. And this this is huge, because it is that step of faith that moves you. Why are you doing it? No one no one can tell you why. Does it it make any physical sense for you to go underwater and come back and now we celebrate that? No. It's just getting dunked in water unless it's not. Unless it's this great act of faith that you're identifying with centuries of people that declare what you declare. Then it is something so powerful and so amazing and so troubling. Because it's a big deal, right? It's such a big deal that I've had conversations with people in our church this week, last week, and they said to me, Not yet, not yet. You want to be baptized? Not yet. Not yet. When? Not yet. How about no, no not yet? It's such a big deal that Constantine was never baptized. Until his deathbed, he was just sprinkled upon. Because he says that I'm not going to be baptized because I'll just continue to sin. In his mind, to be baptized was to be cleansed of all sin. See, that's what salvation is. When you are lowered in the water today, this this is a declaration of faith, not a declaration of salvation. You've already made that declaration. You've already accepted that. You've already been washed clean. Now you're coming face-to-face with this act of faith of response to that. It's an, it's an outward response to something we've already done inside of us. And so as we do this, this is not something that we enter into lightly, but it's also not something that we hang salvation upon. So those of you that have never been baptized and you're just like freaked out about it, that's okay. You just let me know when not yet is, and we'll make sure that takes place. So we're going to, here in a little bit, we're going to move into connecting time. After connecting time, we're going to make our way outside. And, uh, and here's, here's why I wanted to do it this way. Um, I don't think we've ever had a baptism service. Now, now I'm saying that. It's like on the, they tell you when you're interviewing something to never ask a question you don't know really the answer to because you, you could get like very awkward dead space. <laughs> this could happen right now. We've never done a baptism where someone didn't just be like, I'm next, even though it wasn't planned on being that way. Today may be that day. But I want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to wrestle with that. And if you've not been baptized, that you wrestle with this idea of what that'll be, of how important this step is. And I want to make sure that Jesus is not calling you out of the crowd and because you're comfortable, hunched over in the corner, that you're not coming forward. So I want to make sure that we experience connecting time first. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to wrestle with God for a little bit before we move out there before we take this step because I want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to look God look Jesus right in the face and say are you calling me to do this are you are you wanting me to take this step today and if he is I'm telling you this this lady that was standing in the corners she went from this to face to face with Jesus because she responded to that call and I just want to make sure that everyone has that opportunity so the band's going to come Pastor Jess is going to explain some stations of how we do this. If you're new with us, uh, connecting time is just a tangible way for you to reach out and connect with God this morning. When we wrap up, I will come back in and we will, we will all head out there and uh, we will watch one of the most amazing things that we get to participate in in the faith. So this morning, have we move into connecting?